0: Bible and it's like every time it just, as you, you track through the scriptures and it just seems to jump out, you read it all the time but it, now it's just prominent, and you're seeing it and so that's kind of in, in a sense what it's been like for me in relation to reading some of the, um, uh, especially those the first five books of the Bible and so um, again we're going to touch upon some of that as well this morning. But just to kind of, uh, just to reiterate where we are at, we we did look um, in the first instance as we can the glory of God. We looked at the, uh, the, the desire of God to dwell with men. We looked at the plan of God from the fall and then the full restoration of the glory of God and progressively how that was taking place in the scriptures. Then we looked at the following week um, the glory of god is compared to the old covenant and the new covenant you'll remember last week and we made an emphasis of the new covenant giving us life and now the glory is within us praise the lord and ultimately there's more glory to come so we're we're considering the theme there was the glory that excels and so excels it does but i want to uh turn your attention this this morning to again we're going to look at god's glory but um, I guess we're going to look at it in another aspect or you know, we've been looking at the, the glory that excels, the more glorious aspects of God's glory in Scripture but I want to look at the other side of the coin, coin if you want to call it, in relation to God's glory and uh, that's God's glory as it is associated with His holiness because when we talk about the glory of God, when we talk about the person of God, when we talk about the knowledge of God, we are it is inseparable that we uh, to the holiness of God. God is glory, God is holy. And these are attributes that are associated with his his uh, uh, his being. And so, therefore, it is important for us to identify with God's glory in relation to His holiness. Because when we first read, if you remember, when we're going back to Exodus 24, when we looked at Moses there and God coming down on Mount Sinai, the the whole expression of that as well, when God uh, gave Moses the commandments, was that God came down and the glory of God appeared and the thunderings and the lightnings and they, were, and they weren't allowed to touch the mountain lest they would die and it was so awesome to behold the glory of God and uh, God says that, uh, that I would put my, the people feared and God says don't fear but he also says to Moses that at that time I've done this that my fear may be put in their hearts so that they may not sin against me because associated with the glory was the holiness of God. They knew that if anyone would even touch the mountain other than whom God had invited to, they would be put to death. See how the inseparableness of God's glory and God's holiness are intimately connected and we understand from Scripture that sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. Sin has no place or association with the glory of God. And what is interesting as we consider the glory of God is we'll find in Scripture that we can, you know, obviously we sin against God but we're looking at now in the context of sinning against God's glory, His person and those attributes that are associated with Him. So, to sin against God is to violate the glory of God, is to uh, tarnish the glory of God and the two uh, uh, cannot coexist And so it's therefore, we want to consider the holiness of God, we want to consider the glory of God, and in doing so, realise that if we are not in tune or aligned ourselves, then we too can bear various consequences in our lives. I mean, Hebrews 12, the context is talking about God's discipline, if we're familiar with Hebrews 12. And the whole issue of God's discipline is that we may be partakers of His holiness. And so, in, in light of that, we want to uh, consider and understand as Christians our own relationship to the glory of God, that we would be sober-minded, that we would be understanding uh, because the last thing we want to do is live and conduct ourselves in a manner that would be offensive and grievous to God and uh, ultimately would tarnish his glory. And so, the reason why I have chose this particular text and we'll move through a few uh, as we proceed from here and it's not you know we're not doing an exposition as 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 much as I could really because this text is uh, quite wonderful but it does set the tone it sets the tone and it sets a serious tone and as we read the text that we're about to read uh, and we track some of this through in relation to God's glory we will we will identify remember glory being, being weighty We'll identify with the weightiness, the heaviness of the subject and really that's what Hebrews is touching upon, especially as it refers to in these particular texts. So, we want to pick up the tone. We want to sense the tone and then we want to trace it again through some scriptures there in the Old Testament and make its application to the New Testament believer because it has an application and so that we could be edified and obviously Israel is an, it serves as an example to teach us about these things. And so let's read in Hebrews 12 verse, 20, uh, verse 18 actually. We'll start from and through to 29 as we consider the glory of God. Verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, to blackness and darkness and tempest. Notice the, the writer is drawing exactly upon that instance that we spoke about with Moses in chapter 24 in the, when we first considered this. So he's, re- he's referring to that experience. He says, You've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire to blackness and, uh, and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them any more for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more will not uh, uh, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven whose voice then shook the earth but now he has promised saying yet once more i shall not only shake not only the earth but also heaven now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made and the things which cannot be shaken may remain therefore since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Again, we want to sense the tone. We want to pick up what's going on here because the writer is drawing upon Israel. He's drawing upon the experience of Israel and here... God at Mount Sinai and the whole uh, situation as it stands and he's drawing again a contrast that we kind of in a sense that we touched upon last week because here it was God and the glory of God comes but you see it is distant it can't no one's a, they uh, no one's a, to go near no one can approach and there was a, the, the the fear of God was such that Moses was so I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling at the sight as it must have been as they observed this, as they, as they beheld his glory there on Mount Sinai, and yet the, they were not partakers of it because uh, this is that which stands for the administration of death that we spoke about last week. But the scripture tells us, amen, that we are not at Mount Sinai, but we, amen, in verse 22, we are at Mount Zion. Praise the Lord. You see... Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. You see, we are in now, amen, the new covenant. We are in Christ. We are not at Mount Sinai, which ultimately brought forth condemnation and death. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We are at Mount Zion. We are a part of the church, amen, in which we have been born into in Christ Jesus and this is what Ephesians talks about in chapter 3 specifically. There's this mystery that was being revealed and this that relates to the church. And isn't it interesting that at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians, in verse 21, the Bible says, to him be glory in the church. It's all about the glory of God in the church. But you see, in the same way that uh, Israel in, in in their context as it related to the old covenant had a relationship and an obligation to God, we, amen, in the same way, we're not at Mount Sinai, we are at Mount Zion. We are part of the heavenly Jerusalem, praise the Lord. We are part of the church of the firstborn and having been born, we are part of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ and all of these metaphors that show us our position in Christ but we too have a relationship to the glory of God we too have a relationship and an obligation to God as we uh, walk with him and uh, and fellowship with him you see God spoke clearly on Mount Sinai didn't he clearly but you see God also speaks clearly from Mount Zion and what, it, what God has said and what God can, speaks from Mount Zion, it has great application to us and we must hear the voice. You see, they heard the voice and the thunderings and the lightnings and they said, you know, stop, stop, it was too much. But you see, that's not what it's like for us, amen, because in Christ Jesus uh, we are on a different level, if you want to call it, in uh, having become partakers of the divine nature and sin having been broken and having been de- declared holy and righteous in Christ, we are at peace with God. Amen. So the glory dwells within us, and so we see these things. But nevertheless, God is speaking. It says in verse 25 of Hebrews 12, it says, "See that you do not refuse him who speaks." Because in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the same manner in which he has spoken at Mount Sinai, so he speaks at Mount Zion and that which relates to the New Covenant, uh, that which relates to the New Testament, that which relates to all that we find within the Scriptures and the Epistles and the Gospels and so forth. It's relevant. In actual fact, listen to what it says. See that you do not refuse him who speaks for if they did not escape who refused him who speak on earth or spoke on earth much more much more not less more much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven see the tone See, the tone of which the writer is talking about, it's a very sober and serious uh, tone that's being, uh, 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 and this is really right throughout the epistle itself, but we find it being expressed there that there is an accountability to us as well. There's an obligation from our part that's being uh, expressed here and if they didn't escape at Mount Sinai, how much more? Because we've got a greater blessing. We've received much more in Christ So how much more does it apply to us if we refuse to listen to him who speaks now? And this is what is being expressed. In actual fact, if you want to, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and we'll pick up this tone further because it sets the context and you can read from verse 26 with me. But again, let's just state it as it says. For if we sin willfully, so that's disobedience, isn't it? If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. How much worse punishment, the scripture says. In, under Under Moses' law, if once they, uh, once they were, uh, were, were guilty, they died without mercy, a testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? <laughs> Do you suppose those who trample the Son of God count the blood of the covenant in which was sanctified common, and an insult of the spirit of grace? Verse 30. For we know him who said, "Vengeance is mine, I will repay," says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. Now listen to verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because once you know the truth, you're accountable to the truth. Once you've heard God speak, you're accountable to obey what God has spoken. You see, there are those that are dead in sin. They haven't heard the voice of the Son of God. They're completely alienated from the life of God. But to the one that knows, to the one that has heard, to the one who's at Mount Zion and God has spoken and God has declared to live in willful disobedience and rebellion against God, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How, how If they didn't escape, how shall we escape? And so here... If, You have this that is being communicated and it's by looking at Israel because the writer of Hebrews is referring to the law of Moses he's referring to the experience of Israel and it's by considering the lessons that we find in the Old Testament that we can be edified that we can learn we can understand that's why the scripture tells us in 1st Corinthians chapter 10 that these things happen to them as an example and they were written for our admonition. So that by looking at Israel's failure, that by looking at their history, that we would identify and draw out the lessons and and see their failures and learn from them so that we won't repeat them. Actually, we might as well just read it for the sake of it. Go to 1 Corinthians 10 uh, and uh, we can see it there in verse we'll read from verse 5. But these, those that came out, it says, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples. These things became our example. That um, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play that's right there at the calf the golden calf what happened people died nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fell nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer I mean this all has an application to us. That's what the scripture say. Now all these things happen to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so we see these things. In verse 27 or 28 of Hebrews 12 go back there. It says therefore since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. The issue of grace is critical here. It's, it's, it's actually centred around uh, what uh, the writer Paul is talking about here in Hebrews 12. Uh, the, you know, Again, falling short of the grace of God because God's grace, amen, is what enables us to live the Christian life. So that's a separate issue, but nevertheless it needs to be noted. But we're not going to dwell there. But it says this after that, that by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. See, God wants us to be, serve Him with reverence and godly fear. Now, listen to this for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, some of you might be sitting there saying, Pastor Gary, what has that got to do with the glory of God? I'm going to show you. Because it has everything to do with the glory of God. And this is what the Lord had been showing me as I've just been reading in recent uh, weeks and uh, and and it just stood out as I was reading through these first, you know, Exodus and Numbers and uh, those books of the Bible there and I was just noting the connections. I was just seeing it in a way that I hadn't noted it before and it so ties in with what we're talking about now and our God is a consuming fire. You see, we know that in the Old Testament when Israel sinned, They aroused God's anger and God's judgment and uh, there were times in which they bore those consequences and upon them. The Lord will judge his people. That's what it says in Hebrews. Peter says it, judgment happens in the house of God. They haven't really fundamentally changed. But you see, It's interesting to note the context of the glory of God because remember when the tabernacle was set up and God filled the holy place. We made note of this last week and in Moses' time when the tabernacle was made according to the pattern, God came, the cloud and the glory of God filled that place but yet we know that uh, uh, Israel, Israel was in sin and so forth and there was judgment. But whenever the glory of God came and when it was confronted with sin, there was always an outbreak, wasn't there? In actual fact, God would consume them in his judgment. Moses would intercede and and, you know, and there was a, we see God's mercy and we see God's grace playing itself out in all of those aspects. But at the same time, we see God's judgment as 1 Corinthians 10 identifies. And so, Israel's history teaches us something. So, let's turn, if you can, to Numbers chapter 14. I want to start there and I want us just to um, make the identification in Numbers 14. Now, this is a familiar portion of text in that this is where Israel, uh, God has brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and now he has brought them to the edge of Kadesh, and they're on the edge of the promised land and the spies, the 12 spies have been sent in and you know the story that 10 of them come back with a negative report and Joshua and Caleb, they come back with a positive report filled with faith but the 10 influence the congregation and the assembly of Israel as a whole and so Israel, the people of Israel begin to cry out, they begin to complain and they fall into unbelief And they complain harshly against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out to kill us? It was better back at Egypt and so you know the story. But in Numbers chapter 14, we have them rebelling. It says, uh, and just go to verse 10. And Moses is talking, actually I think it's Caleb uh, is talking or maybe Joshua, actually Joshua is talking to him and he says don't rebel and so forth. But in the midst of what's going on in verse 10 it says and all the congregation said um, stone them with stones. So stone Joshua and Caleb with stones because of the, the good report you know, uh, that, they're, that they're bringing so let's just kill them. But listen to what happens now in verse 10. Now, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. See, right at that moment, right in that instance, God comes. The glory of God appears uh, before them in the tabernacle of meeting. Now, it's interesting the response here. Go down to verse 16. It says, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. This is Moses interceding for the people, okay? And now I pray, he said, Moses is praying and interceding for the children of Israel. He says, Now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of, upon the third and fourth generations. Pardon the iniquity of this people I pray according to the greatness of your mercy just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And then the Lord said I have pardoned according to your word. Now here's an instance where Moses is interceding and God is being merciful. Now there is still a judgment upon the people. In actual fact they will, rather than God kill them God says okay I'll let them live. Because remember, before that God had said to Moses, listen, I'm going to disinherit them, I'll get rid of them all and I'll start with you and we'll start again. And that's where Moses begins to intercede. And then Moses, uh, God responds to Moses' intercession and he says, okay then, now they still bore a judgment because that generation died without ever entering into the promised land. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness as scripture says. But note what it says here after this. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, Moses, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Again, this is the p- intent of God. This is the plan of God. Despite Israel's failure, despite their sin, despite their rebellion, God is making it clear to Moses uh, that my glory will... I- will um, be upon all the earth. The earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So this is God's intent. This is God's desire. And that's why when it is met with unbelief, when it is met with rebellion, when it's met with disobedience from God's people, uh, it is offence to God and uh, it hinders the purpose of God because God wanted uh, Himself to be glorified in Israel, didn't He? He was going to bring them in with a mighty arm and He did. The next generation, he said to them, you think you're victims and you think this, your uh, your children are going to be victims. Well, I'm going to take those you think are victims and I'm going to be glorified in them. But he wasn't glorified in them. So, the purpose point is, is that despite our failure and despite us, uh, God's glory will always be manifested and will ultimately be manifested, praise the Lord. But you see, we have uh, the glory of God. Now, this is a pattern. Now, the reason why, again, I've uh, I've noted this, I want you to turn to Exodus 32 as we go back. Because in Exodus 32, we find this is where the golden calf was being made. And this is where Moses is coming down from the mountain and uh, he's angry and and so forth. Now, I want to look at verse 16 of Exodus 32. Now, it says, in Moses turn. Uh, verse, uh, sorry, verse 16. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was, the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses. Uh, sorry, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm reading the wrong scripture here. Can we go? Sorry, verse 10. I want to go to verse 10. Sorry about that. Verse 10. Now, therefore, as God is looking at uh, the the rebellion of the children of Israel, says in verse 10, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Here we go again. But God says, in my anger, he says, I will consume them. I will consume them. Look at verse 12. Why should the Egyptian, Moses says, why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Now the point here is we find on two instances the word consume. And so God is saying as a result of their violation and rebellion against God, God in his displeasure and in his glory he wants to consume them that word consume means to bring to an end utterly destroy them and so when we find in hebrews the word our god is a consuming fire in the context of what is being stated there this is what the writer is drawing upon when he's reflecting back on our god is a consuming fire and he's drawing upon the parallels of moses of mount zion and Mount Sinai, and, and, the, and all the contrasts and so forth, when he says our God is a consuming fire, how shall we escape if they didn't escape? He's talking about this very thing. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a glorious God, and in light of that, if we are to sin willfully against him, will we not be consumed? I mean, you can see this in various stages in the New Testament, and we we spoke about the commun- we talk about the communion. You know, Paul writes and says that because of, of their violation of God, that um, and that, that that many of them were falling asleep, many were sick, many were dying, many were being consumed. You see the connection. Now, we can go to Numbers chapter 16 and we'll see there another instance of glory, of the glory of God being manifest. But again, in Numbers 16, we have the, what we know as the rebellion of Korah. Now we, again, I, I assume there are many of us that are familiar with the rebellion of Korah. But I just want to highlight the context. These are uh, those that have uh, come to rebel against Moses and Aaron and so they've said, well, who do you think you are? God doesn't just speak to you, he speaks to us also and and there's a a rebellion that's, that's manifesting. Now, I want us to identify God's response to this. Now, let's look at verse 16. It says, And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord. You and they, as well as Aaron, let each take his censer and put incense in it and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. Two hundred and fifty censers, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Aaron and Moses. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. So here they are, the, the rebels have gathered themselves according thinking, maybe, somehow thinking that God's in agreement with them, <laughs> really isn't that so strange? But here they are, and the Bible says, "The glory of God appeared to all the congregation, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and He says, "Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment." See rebellion's a terrible thing, isn't it? Jude talks about it, the rebellion of Korah. But rebellion is something that God hates, especially in the context of which we find it here. But nevertheless, it's an affront and an offence to the glory of God and God's glory comes and in that state and in that moment, God says, step aside because I'm going to consume them. And we know the story. The earth opens up and swallows them up alive, Korah and the rebels and the families. And they're consumed in a moment. And notice the glory of God appears and the two can't dwell together. Our gods are consuming fire. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because if you are living in, in rebellion in, in in constant disobedience to the Lord, then we're putting ourselves in a very dangerous position. So we have God. But what's interesting, it even goes further here in chapter 16 because you know the story that Korah and those rebels are all consumed, the earth opens up, closes up and it's all over. And then, listen, then the congregation of Israel becomes sympathetic to the rebels. Think about that. <laughs> that happens a lot in churches too. People come sympathetic with the rebels. But you know that more died... <laughs> more sympathisers died than those that died with Korah. That's another issue. But look at what happens. Go to verse 41. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses. I mean, they they should be giving thanks to God. They should be in fear of God. But yet they say, you've killed the people of the Lord. Moses killed them? Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned towards the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly, suddenly, the cloud covered it, and the glory of God appeared. God's glory comes down. Suddenly, He appears, and God is not happy. He's just judged to Korah and the rebels and now the congregation of the children of Israel are complaining further uh, and sympathising with the rebels Uh, and so what does God say? Give him a hug? No. God says, listen, then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment and they fell on their faces. This is is serious, isn't it? Our God is a consuming fire. That's the point I'm wanting to make, that the glory of God appears and Him who speaks. We are not at Mount uh, 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 Mount Sinai, we are at Mount Zion and if they didn't escape, how much more will we not escape if we don't hear Him who speaks from heaven? You see, it's one thing for them to sin against the glory of God, but I tell you, for us as Christians as well, if we were to violate God's glory, if we were to sin against Him and live... Now, this is not to say that every time you sin, God's got to zap you, okay? Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Uh, I don't want to be misrepresented. But what I'm saying is if we live in an habitual state of sin and disobedience to God, I fear for individuals. Because when the heart becomes hardened and there's a and and, the, and our, the disposition of our life becomes such one of complete disregard for God, and you know the truth better not to have known than to have known and live that way because this this is serious our gods are consuming fire and so again we see that. Many died. Under the, the, uh, out of the sympathizers, those who died in the plague were fourteen thousand. God consumed fourteen thousand in that moment. <coughs> so, is this concept exclusive to the New Testament? I mean, Old Testament. Well, let's ask Ananias and Sapphira, shall we? Because when the glory of God came at Pentecost and God's gl- presence comes and yes, there is a, there is an ushering in of a new covenant. We looked at this glorious covenant last week and glorious it is, but that doesn't change the character of God. It doesn't change the nature of God. It does, His glory is not any different. And so what we have here is, uh, uh, you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira they, they, they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And yet, the Bible says that they conspired, each one lied, and each, at each moment they both fell down dead. Wow. So, imagine that happened in churches. I, I don't know, we'd all be in trouble. But you see, what's the purpose of that? Is it, this is New Testament. This is, this is right at the dispensation of the church because God's glory was, 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 was offended. The glory of God had appeared. Sin was in the camp and they can't dwell together. Our God is still a consuming fire. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And they learned that. And the Bible says after the church witnessed what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira, the Bible says great fear came upon the people. Great fear. You could imagine that. Everyone smartened up real quickly. Anyone had some little areas of compromise? Quickly, get, get in order. Because I tell you, you don't want to play around. This is serious business. Don't play with fire, you get burnt. And don't play with God because our God is a consuming fire. And so here it is. We see these examples that that are being illustrated to us and here even in the New Testament. But you see, the Bible says that when great fear came on their people, the people esteemed the apostles greatly. Hmm. There was no signs of the rebellion of Korah there because they looked at at Peter and the apostles and they said, whoa, these people are men of God. Maybe later they wanted to do so (laughs) because that's what happens. (laughs) But you see... That's how it works. And then the Bible says, great signs and wonders were done among the people and God's glory was continually manifested. God's holiness was on display. His power was being at work amongst, amongst them and they saw him. But you see, sin has to be removed because the glory of God and sin cannot dwell together. Bible says in Acts 9 they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and that's where you know when we talk about the fear of God yeah I, we need to be like Moses exceedingly fearful and trembling but at the same time amen though I fear God I'm not scared of him because once I know I'm walking in reverence and godly fear I can walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit that's what the Scriptures is teaching us and so the point in all of this, it is, as I want to make, is that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I want you to see when the writer of Hebrews says that our God is a consuming fire, what is he thinking about? Is he thinking about a bonfire? Is he thinking, <laughs> he's talking about a consuming fire. And this is what he's referring to in his mind as he writes that. Now let's move on. I want to look quickly at one other aspect because... There's another example in scripture that we find in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and again this is a familiar portion of text because this is another stage of Israel's history in which they have disobeyed God and uh, are away from God and we have Eli, the, um, uh, the priest who has failed to discipline his sons Phineas and Hophanus. and so God uh, speaks to Samuel and he's going to bring them and he's going to judge them because the glory of God cannot coexist with that what was going on and the evil and the wickedness that was being manifested in not just in Israel but now uh, within the family of Eli and Eli God said to Samuel it failed to discipline them Maybe if Eli had dealt with them severely and and, uh, appropriately, maybe things would have been a little bit different. I don't know. But that was uh, uh, Eli's failure in that instance. And so we we have the the whole situation where in one day, uh, 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 the two sons of Eli are killed. Eli hears the news and he falls and he breaks his neck and he dies too. And then Phineas's wife, she is in labour, and because of the, uh, I mean, she's pregnant. And because of the distress and all that's going on, she goes into labour, and she gives birth to a son. And the Bible says that she gives no regard to the to the child. I mean, it, it's a it's a miserable day. And then, what does she name the child? Ichabod. Ichabod, the glory of God has departed from Israel. See, what a sad day that was. The glory of God had departed from Israel. And so, it's also interesting to note that the Ark of God was captured that day and the Ark representing the the presence of God and the glory of God. And isn't it interesting that the Philistines took it and remember, god's, <laughs> the glory of God does not dwell with sin. And so you have, um, our gods are consuming fire. So what happens is the ark goes over to the Philistines and then their, their god Dagon over the night is found on the floor bowing face first before uh, the ark. And it happens again the next day. And the Philistines are like, hmm, what's going on here? Then the Bible says that God's the, the hand of the Lord becomes so heavy upon the Philistines that God strikes them with tumors. And they become ill and they become diseased and they are in pain and they're suffering and they're going, "What's going on?" And they said, "I know what it is. It's God. It's the God of Israel." They said, "Get rid of the ark. Get it out of here. Because the two can't coexist." Because, and so, again, and that's why uh, when you talk about the believer, God says in first, uh, Second Corinthians, He says, Come out from among them. What does light have with darkness? What does Christ have with the devil? Come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord. And then I'll be a father to you, you shall be my sons and daughters. What's also interesting in the context that our God is a consuming fire is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's talking about the, the, the temple and he's talking about um, not the temple of us personally, which, which we are, that's in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that you are the temple of God, the spirit of God dwells in you? But the, in chapter 3, Paul's talking about the temple and he's talking here specifically, not about the individual as such, but the corporate body of Christ, the church. And he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Do you not know, he's writing to the church at Corinth, that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. See again, God will consume them. If anyone defiles the temple of God, the, the, the church is a holy place. Amen. Thank God for sinners that come into the church. We have an opportunity to present Christ. We have an opportunity to preach Christ. But I tell you, if sin is running rampant within the church, then, then we are in a, in a condition of Ichabod because the two can't go together. Oh, well, this is church is just filled with grace. We just accept anybody and everybody. We can have homosexuals just sit in this church and uh, we just don't preach the gospel because we don't want to offend anybody. Well, the glory of God disappeared a long time ago. And so, if we defile the temple of God, God will destroy him. And again, we're, we're picking up the serious tone and nature of these things. And where there is sin in the camp, where there is rebellion in the camp, where idolatry is amongst the church, where there's false doctrine that exists and is able to permeate. Little leaven leavens the lump, the scripture says, where there is a false fire, will not the glory of God depart if these things are allowed to continue? That's why as a shepherd and as a pastor, as a teacher of God's word, we are to guard the flock. We are to shepherd the flock from wolves and false teachings and we're required amen sometimes we have to ask people to go and to leave especially in, in, in all various types of circumstances but when the, when the core beliefs of the gospel are compromised amen we must hold fast to the truth. Otherwise, uh, we fail in our responsibility before the Lord. And secondly, you can be sure that God's glory will be offended, and it's only a matter of time before we we will become ourselves, Ichabod. You see, we must be mindful of these things. Isn't it interesting? God, uh, Paul writes in Romans 11, and he says consider, he's talking about Israel and drawing again some parallels concerning, not parallels but he's making a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles and uh, he says for consider the goodness and the severity of God the goodness of God on those that have amen, the Gentiles those who fell which were the Israelites because, because both have their application and what happened to Israel uh, God, uh, Paul writes and he says be careful because it can happen to you That's what he says in Romans 11. He says, if God didn't spare the natural branches, then what makes you think he won't spare you either? Don't be so conceited. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Don't be so proud and aloof to think that somehow you're exempt because if God didn't spare the natural branch, he won't spare you either. Consider the goodness and severity of God. And then he goes on to say, that we too, if we don't continue, we can be cut off. That's what he says. We can debate what he means by it, but that's what he says. And This is serious. <coughs> One last aspect in the book of Revelation, and I'm making an application here to the church and the glory of God. In Revelation chapter 2 where we have Jesus addressing, or John, by way of a revelation, is addressing the churches here of Asia. And in chapter 2, he speaks to the church of Ephesus. And it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, says he who holds seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the golden lamp, seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labour, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles, and have found them liars. Uh, sorry, you have persevered, and have patience, and have laboured for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The lampstand is very symbolic in scripture. The lampstand is that which represents Christ and the Holy Spirit, God himself, in their midst. And God is saying uh, to the church at Ephesus uh, that uh, that your lampstand will be removed. In other words, uh, the glory of God will depart if you don't repent. There is a warning that's being made and, and other warnings are found within that. But you see, I mean, we think about this and isn't it interesting because we look at church history and we see wonderful moves of God. We see, we see, uh, you know, throughout the course of history God used men and, and ministries and movements and they were effective. They worked, uh, God blessed them with fruitfulness and they were great in their work for the Lord uh, and yet uh, uh, in light of all of that, in the generations that surpassed and as they went on, they ended up embracing all kinds of false teachings, false practices and false doctrines and the glory of God departs from that church. And we, we could name them off. I'm, uh, you know, you could, you, could, you could think of many as we speak because none of us are exempt from this. We all must be very careful, because what makes us think that uh, we we could avoid, uh, we won't be? uh, uh, Let him who stands take heed, lest he fall. But you see, in the modern church, I think that the glory of God has, in many ways, departed. I think of the modern church with all of its contraptions, and so because there's no glory of God, they have to create glory. So in in their church services now, they'll have smoke machines they'll have flashing lights, it'll be dark and they create an atmosphere and they call it, can you feel God? It ain't God. That's false fire, That's, that's not the glory of God, that's not the presence of God, that is human manufactured emotion, that is flesh. Oh, it appears to the flesh, it all seems so wonderful and good and everyone's there like, oh, can you feel it? Oh, feel the Lord. Feel the Lord. You don't need to. You know what? I can be in church singing, sitting here and I can sense the presence of God. They're oh, what do you mean, Pastor? I, 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 I know. I can sense the presence of God. Does that mean I feel the presence of God? Well, sometimes uh, it can release and manifest in a bit of an emotion with it because when I sense the presence of God, I usually get excited. B- but the point is, uh, is uh, that that's a byproduct. These people are, are, man- are maneuvering and manufacturing from the outside, trying to work themselves in and, and manipulate, and they call it the glory of God. It's not the glory of God. It's false fire, and in Scripture, when they, when uh, the high priest put forth false, false fire in uh, Exodus, God killed them. God consumed them in a moment, because what we're dealing with is, imp- is serious business. So again, I'm, I'm talking about all of these things. God can depart if we don't walk according to truth, if we don't order our conduct aright, if we don't worship as God would have us to worship. And that's where we, we then move into the realm of what we call Christendom, the religious world. I don't want nothing to do with it, church. I, I don't care whether we're small or whether we're large although I want to be fruitful and I want to see the church grow, amen, because you know what? We all want to see more souls won for the kingdom and if that means more people, God bless, bring in as many as he wants. But you see, whether it's small, whether it's big, as long as God, the glory of God is present and we are upholding the truth, then praise be to his name. I want a church that's filled not with Ishmael's but Isaac's. I want a church, amen, that's not filled with weeds, uh, that tears, but wheat, amen. I know that the birds of the air find their nest, and these things exist in churches, but I tell you what, uh, uh, and they will always exist, but the point is, for the most part, amen, we are a people that are God-honoring, God-fearing, and we understand some of these things that we're talking about this morning that relate to the glory of God. Now, I want to close with an encouraging thought this morning because, you know, we talked about the church, we talk about Ichabod, we talk about the state of affairs in the world around us, but you know what? God says, regardless of man's failure, his glory will fill the earth. And not only that, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, That God is coming, Jesus is coming back, and He's coming back for a bride. And this bride, the scripture says, will be without spot, without blemish, and will be presented to Him, listen, as a glorious church. A glorious church of the bride of Christ. You see, because when God presents, God's still at work, amen, God's purpose doesn't fail, men may fail. And men will fail. But God, always, God has his church. God has the bride. And the bride will be reflective of his glory, a glorious church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And God is intent on presenting the, the church to Christ, the bride of Christ. Amen. And it will be a church that is without spot, without blemish. Holy and blameless, the scripture says. Without wrinkle, without spot, a glorious church. And that's, amen, what I want to be a part of. Praise the Lord. That's what we are a part of, praise the Lord. And so, the wicked will one day be consumed. You can read that in the book of Revelation and others. And the righteous will shine forth as the sun and we will be with him forever, amen, in his glory. You see, the scripture says our gods are consuming fire. In the previous verse it says, let us have grace that we may serve God acceptably. Acceptably, you know there's an acceptable way to serve God and there's an unacceptable way to serve God. And how do you know whether you're serving God acceptably? It says "With, with, uh, with reverence and godly fear. What I've noted as a Christian, if my disposition is one of reverence towards God and is one that is, uh, is, is fearful in, in, in the context of the fear of God, then as I proceed forward and I say, Lord, is this acceptable? Is this okay? Then the Lord will direct our steps. You'll find out, you know, the Scripture says, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. You've got to find out. You've got to take an approach that says, okay, I I like doing this, but is this acceptable to God? Is this godly? Is this righteous? Is this holy? Is this an offence to the glory of God? Will this grieve the Spirit of God? And as we walk by the grace of God, because the scripture says in Titus, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness, and that we may walk soberly. Teaching us. The Bible says teaching us. The grace of God teaches us. When we, so let it be through his grace. Amen. I'm not here to tell you and lay down the laws of Christian religion. Even though there is a law of the spirit of life in Christ. But I tell you, if Christ is in you and you want to walk acceptably before God and you want to walk in the fear of God, then you will be aligned to the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Because it will manifest, you'll bear the fruit of it. It will sh- it'll be seen in your life. And it's not about somebody telling you what to do. It's because you said, God, I want to obey you. I want to serve you. I want to please you. I want to find out what's acceptable in your sight. Because you are God of glory. And so, as as I walk in this manner, then I am changed from glory to glory. And, that's, and, and re- let's be honest, church, we all fall into this category because that's why Elizabeth, ...whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And I can stand here and preach these truths, but I tell you, they apply to me too. Because the Lord, I've had, I've had, and, and will continue, no doubt, at various times that had God brought me through trials and tribulations and, and clearly it was his discipline. But he'd done it so that I become a partaker of his holiness. From glory to glory, praise the Lord. So I pray that this has been edifying this morning and that we can see the glory of God in relation to the fact that the scripture says in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. The glory of God would come and it would consume the wicked. And so let us be a people, amen, that are walking worthy before the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we just thank you the word of God this morning. Lord, there's much to be considered in all of this and I pray, O oh God, that you would quicken by your spirit and your word to the hearts of those that are gathered here this morning, Lord. It would have various applications but I pray that we would have a general revelation and I trust that you will speak to us individually because I want us to understand That our God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that sometimes it's necessary that great fear would come upon your people, especially if it's required. That it would get our attention, it would straighten us out, it would, Lord, cause us to be sober and vigilant, to cause us, Lord, to be serious in our approach. Especially, Lord, if we're going to be partakers of your glory, then we must be holy and walk. In holiness, I just pray that you would, Lord, bless your people. I trust, God, that you will continue the work that you have begun, Lord, uh, and that you would conform us into the image of your Son. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord.